and welcome to another episode of the SASMA podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Shalina Babul, who joins us from Vancouver, Canada. Shalina is an Associate Director and Sports Injury Specialist with the British Columbia Injury Research and Prevention Unit at British Columbia Children's Hospital. She focuses primarily on sport and recreational evidence-based research and knowledge implementation with a particular specialization in concussions and traumatic brain injuries and their prevention, recognition, treatment, and management. She's the chair and member of several provincial and national concussion advisory committees. Shalina is the recipient of a British Columbia Hockey Safety Award and the Brain Injury Association of Canada Prevention and Awareness Award and was nominated for the 2019 YWCA Woman of Distinction Award. Shalina developed the concussion awareness training tool, the CAT tool, and I look forward to chatting with her more about it today. So welcome, Shalina. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be speaking with you this morning. Thank you so much. So let's start at the beginning. When did this tool launch? Where is it today? And who does it apply to? Yeah, so the concussion awareness training tool launched about a decade ago in 2013. And it really was developed based on certain events that happened during the around 2010. And that was with the death of Natasha Richardson, who was an actress taking a, a beginner ski lesson and took a seamlessly minor fall. She got up, she said she had a headache, went back to her chalet and died two days later from a subdural hematoma or bleed to the brain. And that's when media and medicine it piqued their interest on what exactly happened. She was not wearing a helmet. And I do feel if she had been wearing a helmet, uh, as a preventative measure, uh, she would probably be alive today. Now, that's not to say that the helmet would have prevented the concussion or the head injury, but it would have mitigated the severity of the injury. And then about nine months later, 10 months later, we had Sidney Crosby, arguably the world's best hockey player at that time, who scores the winning goal in the 2010 Winter Olympics here in Vancouver, Canada was sidelined from what it was known at the time as a concussion. And that's when I started getting, oh, where do I see? What do I do? No one believes my child can't study, has persisting headaches. The doctor said he's had his bell rung. So we recognized that there was a disconnect in the knowledge that people had in terms of recognizing and managing concussions. So what we did is we did an environmental scan, a global environmental scan to, to see, did anything exist to educate individuals on concussions? And there wasn't really anything at that time. And the two tools that did exist had a cost attached to it. So people potentially were unwilling to pay to learn more about concussions. And then we did focus groups with various audiences because Depending on who you are, what you need to know is very different when it comes to concussions. Physicians need to know how to accurately diagnose concussions based on the latest evidence and guidelines. Parents need to know how to manage their child's concussions. Individuals need to know how to immediately recognize and know how to respond to a concussion, potential concussion-causing event. So we took all this information, and that's when we developed the concussion awareness training tool. So it's been about a decade since we've had it, and it has grown 
in its content since we launched it. We launched it with three tools, uh, one for coaches, one for parents, and one for uh, medical professional modules for various audiences, including high-performance university athletes, including women support workers who deal with intimate partner violence, high school youth, for example, or educators in the school system. So it's really grown in capacity and it's grown in terms of organizations and agencies and educational institutions who mandate it annually for their audience. So for example, in Canada, over 40 universities and colleges across the country have mandated it for their university athletes to take at the beginning of the academic school year. So we're really pleased with the global reach it has received. And we are currently in the process of updating it based on the latest consensus statement that was released earlier this year, as well as giving it a new look because technology changes over time. And we really value the feedback we receive. So we incorporate all that every four years when we update the tool. Okay, great. I think the important thing here is the the fact that it is staying relevant, it's being updated. And the thing for, for practitioners and educators is, does it still remain relevant? As in, if I did the training with the previous version, would it still remain relevant after the new update? Yeah, it's, it definitely still is relevant. When we update it, updating the, the consensus statements when they are released and published every four year really build on the previous iterations. So it's still relevant. And the new updates really have more enhanced features. For example, in the new guidelines, for example, they have the enhanced red flags. So we will be updating it with the enhanced red flags, which now includes, for instance, the word repeat to vomiting. Instead of just vomiting, it's got repeat vomiting. Uh, they've added skull deformity to the red flags. So it just enhances the previous iteration. And we also have new languages that are being incorporated. Currently, it's available in, in French and English. We did some work in Beirut, Lebanon earlier this year, and their government have now, along with Dr. Samar Al-Hajj, have come out with the eye care program, which is a concussion program that's going to look at mandating the training for their educators in the school system. Because unfortunately, when we went there in March to do the workshops, timing-wise, they had a 10-year-old boy who sustained a concussion in the school setting and unfortunately died because it wasn't recognized and he wasn't immediately sent to the emergency department. So it's really relevant. And I do want to add that all the courses have been evaluated to show changes in knowledge, statistically significant changes in knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors. So I do want to stress that they have been evaluated to show changes. And the tool, the other beauty of the tool is it's free of charge and it is re reviewed and updated monthly because the science around concussions are changing rapidly. And in addition to the consensus statement, there's new and emerging information and position statements that are evidence-based. So we want to ensure that the tool is current and up-to-date and includes all that information. And the additional pieces, when I go to a website and I click on a link and I see the little globe spinning and I'm waiting and waiting for it to launch, 
or if a link is broken, I probably won't go back to that site again. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen to the users of the CAT tool and they get a seamlessly efficient and easy experience when they go to the concussion awareness training tool. That's amazing. And I think it's really important, as you say, is that the evidence is continuously growing and changing. And despite mm-hmm. completing the tool, it's important to obviously stay up to date with what's current by keeping on reviewing the, the current evidence. Correct. Yes. Very important. So in terms of concussions, I think there's a misconception that these are only sport related. So can you explain how it happens and examples of circumstances where concussion can occur? Yeah, for the longest time, concussions were thought as a sport-related injury. And that only happens in about 35 to 40% of incidents. But a concussion can happen to anyone, anywhere, anytime. I mean, an individual can trip on the sidewalk and hit their head or hit their head taking the groceries out of the trunk or the boot of their car. So it really can happen to anyone. It really is an invisible injury. And the mechanics around it is really an acceleration, deceleration, or rotation of the brain inside the skull. There's a misconception out there that a concussion is just a knock to the skull, but it's really what's happening behind the skull that's causing the concussion. So when there's the rapid movement of the brain inside the skull, you get a shearing and tearing of the nerve fibers, the axons, the glial cells, all of the intricate nature of the brain. And when there's a disruption of these nerve fibers, That leads to the symptoms that the individual experiences. So the brain needs time to heal and recover from the initial injury. So the individual needs to stop physical and cognitive activity that that really either puts them at risk of uh, having another concussion event or that really taxes the brain. So for 48 hours, we want the individual to just continue with their daily activities at a minimum that doesn't exacerbate their symptoms, but really give the brain an opportunity to rest for that initial couple of days and then slow and active integration back to activity as tolerated. So there's really a step-by-step guideline that we have on the concussion awareness training tool that individuals can, can follow to recovery. But it's really important that a concussion is immediately recognized and responded to so that the individual can recover uneventfully within the normal course uh, or normal time frame. And that's within four weeks, roughly. Now, the other thing I'd like to highlight is that everybody responds very differently to a concussion. And as researchers, as investigators, we still don't understand the intricacies of the brain. It's such a fragile organ. It's the only organ that can't be transplanted. And why do people respond so differently? So what I mean by that is you can have someone who has a significant head-to-head collision, say in heading the ball or head-to-head when heading the ball in soccer. And that individual is completely fine the next day versus say someone who just hits their head on the kitchen cabinet. And that individual now is having persistent, persisting symptoms for months on end. So why is that the case? And that is currently further being explored by researchers and investigators. 
Sure, there's risk factors that come into play, but in the end, we need to really understand what's happening to the brain. We've come a long way in the past decade to really understand that a concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury, and it's not just having your bell rung, tough it out, play through it. It it is a brain injury, but we have a long way to go to really understand the intricate nature of this fragile organ. Yeah, that's very true. And I think it's pertinent to recognize that, especially here in South Africa, with multiple car accidents, intimate partner violence, that a concussion can occur in all of these circumstances, which doesn't need to be sports related. And we need to recognize and treat them appropriately. So yeah, I think, how do we get this education out to our general public, but also that it's even in our emergency departments, in our emergency rooms, that these are not missed and that they treated with the care that they're supposed to be? Yeah, that's a great question, especially because a concussion is an invisible injury. You can't see the this injury as you can with a broken arm or a foot or bruising and contusions that are visible to the emergency room medical staff. So we really need education. We need educate education amongst all these audiences. And that involves a very concerted uh, strategic knowledge translation strategy. And since we've launched the tool, it's taken us a decade to really raise awareness and raise the level of understanding amongst all these audiences. I mean, we're getting there, but I do think we have a long way to go. When we did the focus groups, we said to physicians, if we build this tool, what do you want? And they said to us, we want the most amount of information in the least amount of time, because I have a to-do list of about 20 pages. So I don't have time to focus on comprehensive education. So tell me what I need to know in the least amount of time, because I have to be up to date on all the latest evidence on all injuries, all diseases. So we want educators, we want parents, we want individuals, because they're their advocate for their own health. It's their quality of life that is potentially compromised if they don't recognize a concussion. We want everybody to really take the training. It's not a big commitment of your time. I think on the CAT tools, the longest e-learning course. Each mod, each audience has an e-learning course, which ranges from about 40 minutes to about an hour. And then there's supplemental resources that you can spend more time on. So taking an hour out of your time annually to refresh your mind and, and update yourself is not a big time commitment. If you don't, if you can't calculate the number of hours per day and number of hours throughout the whole year, taking one or two hours out of your year isn't a big time commitment. And we really want people to heed the warnings that a concussion is a brain injury. It's the only organ you can't transplant. It's your information highway that allows you to walk, to talk, to see, to speak, to eat. So you really need to put some emphasis on the importance of knowing how to recognize and how to respond to a concussion. Yeah, I mean, that's really for sure. And I think very pertinent that while we are learning about it, it's also to implement policy changes and syllabus changes, even in our medical degrees, in our in anyone studying with any sort of um, traumatic brain injury, that this is included. 
and recognized and managed appropriately. Yes, exactly. And I'd like to add that medical professionals are integral to providing the right care and guidance to their patients. So they need to really know how to accurately diagnose a concussion with the latest evidence and need to give their their patients the right tools in terms of what they need to do when they leave the office. So we in Canada here, we, we're doing a top-down and a bottom-up approach. So bottom-up, I mean, the University of British Columbia is the first medical school uh, across the country that has incorporated the CAT e-learning module for medical professionals into the curriculum. And we will be working with um, other universities and colleges uh, across the country in terms of the medical school curriculum. And then a bottom-down approach, working with the Canadian Medical Association and the individual provincial medical associations across the country in terms of knowing how to accurately diagnose a concussion and, and provide the quality of care that their patients need. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important that's taken across multiple countries worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. How we recognize and diagnose a concussion here in in Canada or North America should be no different than how they do it in Europe or in South Africa. It's all the same evidence. It's just translating that evidence to the various audiences so they know what to do and how to do it. That's for sure. So now... As a sport and exercise medicine physician, a physio, a trainer, a coach that's sidelined during a sports game, what tools should we be using if suspecting a head injury that could be a concussion? And how long should this assessment take me? So this, the, from the latest consensus meeting, the SCAT 6, the Sport Concussion Assessment Tool 6, has now been released earlier this year. And that is a tool to do a sideline assessment within 72 hours of the injury. That's when it has the most utility. And so a physio or an athletic trainer or or coach on the sideline can use the SCAT-6 to do the assessment. As I said, it has the most clinical utility immediately after injury and within 72 hours. And that SCAT-6 diminishes in utility over up to seven days. So Beyond that time frame, they have now published the SCOPE, the Sport Concussion Office Assessment Tool, and that tool should be used as an in-office assessment beyond the five to seven days post-injury. And it's really a good assessment tool that looks at various parameters when diagnosing a concussion. So it's got, it looks at demographics, it, it does some immediate assessment and neurological screening, it goes through the red flags. It has a word recall list. It's got a uh, balance and coordination assessment. So those are all different variables that are included in the SCAT-6 that someone can do on the sideline. In terms of the time it takes to do a thorough assessment, at best, at least 10 to 15 minutes to complete the SCAT-6. But for thorough assessment, but probably is a little bit longer, but at minimum 10 to 15 minutes should be given to do a sideline assessment. Okay, yeah. And and in terms of, should we be comparing our results, even in those 10, 15 minutes to something from previous? As should we be doing baseline testing? But that's a great question, Kyle. Baseline testing is, you know, previously it was said to, baseline testing should be done. But in the previous iteration of the consensus statement, 
it was decided that baseline testing should only be used as an aid in making a diagnosis and should not be used prior to. And the re- and, and when I say that, I mean, baseline testing is very variable. If you do a baseline test on, say, an athlete or an individual who is going through exams, who is lack of sleep, dehydrated, not eating properly, their baseline assessment is going to be very different than, say, someone who is well-rested, comes back from vacation, not stressed from exams. So we don't really recommend baseline testing. However, the caveat to that is for high-performance athletes who have a comprehensive team, athletic trainers, physiotherapists, medical teams, they know their players very well. And they can do baseline testing over various time periods to look at variability in that baseline test. And if they have that, that can be used as a comparative. But in general, for, say, community-level sports, for instance, baseline testing is not recommended because of the variability that is seen in doing a baseline test. But the SCAT-6 in itself, if done accurately and properly, is a good indicator of potential concussion. Yeah, and I think it's important that through this concussion awareness training tool is becoming familiar with the SCAT-6 or the SCOAT-6 so that you're easily able to implement these on a day-to-day basis. Correct, yeah. I do want to highlight also that the SCAT-6 and the SCOAT-6 should be conducted by a health professional who has relevant training. Previous, in the previous iteration, it was a medical professional or a nurse practitioner. Now it highlights health professionals because it varies based on your jurisdiction. I'm not sure how it is in South Africa, but in Canada, certain provinces have physiotherapists that can diagnose and assess concussions. In British Columbia, they can't, but say in Quebec or in Alberta, physiotherapists can. In Quebec, nurse practitioners cannot, whereas in Vancouver, they can. So based on your jurisdiction, I really want to highlight that it should be a health professional who has knowledge and relevant training in doing the assessment and the diagnosis and management. And tell me, so now we've just, let's say we've diagnosed a concussion. Now, what are the risk factors for prolonged concussion symptom recovery? Yeah, so there are there's internal risk factors and external risk factors. So some of the external risk factors for concussion are participating in contact and collision sports, for instance, such as rugby or ice hockey here in Canada are some examples. Are you participating in competitions versus practice. So your type of exposure, game versus practice. Are you wearing protective equipment? What are the rules and policies? Is body checking allowed? Is tackling allowed? So those are some of the external risk factors. In terms of internal risk factors, have you had a previous concussion? There's evidence, although it's variable, that sex plays a role. Females may be at more risk and they may be at more risk because the thought is they're body type and their neck musculature is a lot smaller and weaker than say their male counterparts. Age is a risk factor as risk increases through adolescence. Does the individual have, has, have they been diagnosed with say ADHD or a learning disability? That's another risk factor. Are there 
persisting pre-existing concussion symptoms, for example, that the individual has. The, there's some evidence around the fitness level of individuals and their physical activity levels. If you get someone who is very sedentary that immediately goes and starts playing in a, a high-risk sport without any neuromuscular training, that's a risk factor as well. So those are some of the examples of risk factors that come into play for sustaining a concussion and recovery from a concussion. Yeah, and I think now from there is the the problem comes with, especially in in our younger athletes or our our younger population participating in any sport or sustaining a concussion elsewhere, is they're in school, their parents are working, so now... Do we need to keep these kids at home once they're having these prolonged concussion symptoms? If we can maybe try send them back to school, what can they do? And mm-hmm. what is our guidance there to educating our parents and our students at those ages to managing these prolonged symptoms, especially in students who have, the, as you say, ADHD, learning difficulties already, and their parents mm-hmm. don't necessarily want them missing out on school. Yeah, you know, that this is a big area. Mental health is a big area. And the research is showing that by keeping kids out of school, that doesn't help their mental health. That doesn't help their anxiety. You want them to still be in their environment with their friends, with their peers, but you want to provide them with learning accommodations. So the thought now is that 10 years back, it was put the individual in a dark room and don't let them come out until they're symptom free. And we quickly learned that's not the right thing to do that because that gives rise to mental health issues. So then it was, okay, don't put, fast forward four years from then, don't put them in a dark room, but don't let them do anything until they're symptom free. And now we know that's not right either. Slow active integration back to activity and continuing with their normal daily life as tolerated within the symptom, sub-symptom threshold is actually a good thing. Exercise is actually a good thing. Partaking in your normal day-to-day activities is a good thing. And you want to kind of, I don't want to say fight through the symptoms, but kind of work through the symptoms as long as they're not worsening or new symptoms are not developing. So it's okay to have symptoms as long as they're minimal and to continue with your day-to-day activities as long as it's not going to put you at risk of sustaining another concussion. So do not go back and participate in a high collision sport until you've recovered from your concussion, for example. But you can go to school, but provide accommodations for the students. So if they come back to the classroom and say the the lights or the noise is bothering them, then provide them with a quiet area that they can go and rest for, say, 20 minutes and then try again and work through the symptoms in that sense. So putting them back into the classroom is actually a good thing and helps in their recovery process, but ensure that you give them accommodations so that they can work through it. Yeah, exactly. And I think by using the concussion awareness training tool, we can educate our teachers, our parents, our students on how to try and implement this and in order to properly understand what's going on in their brain. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And and again, it's important to recognize that 
it's okay to have the symptoms and it's okay to, to go on with your daily activities as long as your symptoms aren't worsening or your, your new symptoms are appearing. So try to go through it. And on the concussion awareness training tool, we have the resources, we have the step-by-step guidance documents that individuals can follow through, whether it's return to sport, return to school, return to work, or return to general activity. It allows you to walk through it and know what you can and can't do through each step. Yeah. And, and as you say, it's the tool is accessible. It doesn't necessarily take a long amount of time to, to work through the training. And as you said, it is free, which makes it a lot more beneficial to those who don't want to pay to be able to get this knowledge. Correct. Correct. So now in terms of referring when we're having these prolonged symptoms, at what point would you refer your patient to a neuropsychologist, to an optometrist or ophthalmologist for physio or occupational therapy? When do we make this call? So right now, the normal course of recovery from a concussion or a mal-traumatic brain injury is within four weeks. But if you see towards say three weeks or four week mark that the individual is still having persisting symptoms, they're not getting better, then I would refer them for specific interdisciplinary care. If they're having visual disturbances, visual problems, headaches, they could see an optometrist with specialized care in concussion recovery. If they're having dizziness and headaches, they should perhaps see a physiotherapist for uh, cervical vestibular therapy. So I would say the other thing we want to highlight is that when the individual sees their physician to book a follow-up meeting roughly two weeks from that time so that the physician can do an assessment to see is the patient recovering in the normal course of recovery or if they should be referred to interdisciplinary care. The other thing that is really important is to recognize any mental health challenges that the individual may be experiencing, anxiety, depression, sleep disturbances, should they then be seen by a psychologist, for instance. So it's really important to recognize these early on in the follow-up assessment. And the SCOTE 6 does look at that in the assessment, and it does an anxiety screen, a depression screen, a sleep screen, and it, it gives an indication for referral if necessary. Yeah. And I think an important point as well is that for any practitioner or anyone dealing with managing concussion is to know who in your area is qualified in dealing with these post these persistent symptoms. So yes. Knowing the physios and knowing the occupational therapists or the psychologists in your area so that it's easily referred to on a timely basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the key there is to identify a healthcare professional with relevant training. So for instance, not all physiotherapists have training in cervical vestibular therapy. So it's important to find someone who has that training. And unfortunately in Canada, this is a gap we have here is that not everybody has the relevant training. So trying to identify the key individuals is a challenge for patients and for physicians to know who can and cannot deal with the specific persisting symptoms that patient is having. Yeah, exactly. 
So thank you, Shalina, for this extremely insightful and important conversation. Your knowledge is invaluable, and we appreciate you giving up your time to talk to us today. I have learned a lot, and I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast will too. A link will be provided in the information section of this podcast to access the website and the CAT tool to complete the training to become more competent in concussion recognition and its appropriate management. We hope to see you, Shalina, at one of our local SESMA conferences soon, our next one being in October 2024. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Kyle. It's a pleasure.